So to get into the Word today, I've actually invited one of our kids from our Kids Quest programming here at Tyson's to join me on stage. This is Jane Hastings. Can you all say hi to Jane? Um, Jane, can you tell us what grade are you in? I'm in fourth grade. Excellent. And what's your favorite part about being in Kids Quest here at Tyson's? Um, the worship. You love the worship and singing? Yeah. I hope you had fun singing with Thomas earlier today then too. So Jane, would you mind reading us Matthew 2 verses 1 through 12 before we get into the Word today? That'd be great. Go ahead. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, and it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. Thank you so much, Jane. Can you thank her for reading today? Great job. So good hearing that read even by one of our own children here. And I know this is somewhat of a familiar story, and there is so much. Really, I wish we had time to dive in today within these 12 verses. But what I want to do through our time in the Word this morning is to draw out a few details that I think are central to this narrative and details that I think will show us why God wanted this story included in his word. And then I have just two truths that I want us to see that I believe are particularly helpful for us as we prepare to head into a new year. And while we have no idea what 2022 might hold, these two truths are applicable to every single person listening in here today, no matter how young or old you might be, no matter how long you may have been following Jesus, and even if you've never made a decision to trust Jesus with your life, I would say that these truths have even greater implications for you and for your eternity. So I want to ask you just to stick with me uh, here this morning as well. So before we do that, let's take some time just to ask the Lord to bless our time in the Word. And I want to give you just a moment between you and the Lord to ask Him to speak to you through His Word personally. Then I'll pray and we'll dive into the text. Why don't you take a moment on your own? Father, we thank you for giving us your word as a way to know you, to enjoy you, to learn more about you. And I pray that as a result of our time today, that you would stir our hearts and affections for you, you would challenge us, and you would encourage us in light of what you would want us to hear you saying to us this morning 
Father, we love you. Thank you for giving us this word. Thank you for the kids even that we get to have here in the room that get to enjoy this with us as well. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's children said together, amen. Okay, so just to recap this story a little bit, after Jesus was born, the wise men arrive in Jerusalem. And the term wise men was really a broad term used for well-studied officials or those who were experts in astrology or different magical arts who would serve foreign kings. In fact, the Greek word magi that you probably see in your Bible is where we get our word magic from. When it says they came from the east, it's likely that they came from either Persia or Babylon and Now, we don't actually know how many wise men there actually are, as the Bible doesn't actually tell us how many there were. It simply shows that there was more than one. It uses a plural term. We often think of how many wise men? Three, and that typically tends to be because of the song or the number of gifts or so. But depending on where you look in history, uh, people disagree. In fact, the Eastern tradition assumed that there were 12 wise men. Other parts of church history depict the group size as two, four, or eight different individuals. So the fact is we don't really know for sure. What we do know is that these wise men wouldn't have been traveling alone as well. Since they were prominent figures, they would have been accompanied by attendants and guards. So this was certainly a very large entourage showing up in Jerusalem. When they arrive in Jerusalem, they begin asking around, as it says in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You might wonder, how in the world might they have known to ask about something so specific? Well, at this time, many Israelites would still have been residing in either Persia or Babylon following the exile. And because of this, it's very likely that these wise men had become familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, which would have included a specific prophecy about the coming of a star that would signal the arrival of a new king. We read this a few weeks ago, but let me show it to you again. Numbers 24, verse 17 says this, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, meaning a ruler, shall rise out of Israel. So they see the star in the sky, which leads them to Jerusalem, and they cause enough of a stir that word gets to King Herod, and he is not pleased. It's not hard to imagine why. News of a new king was certainly a threat to his rule, and Herod loved power, and he proved that he would do anything that he can to keep it or protect it. So he would try to protect against any outside attacks by building these large fortresses outside the borders of the city. And to protect against any uprising from the Jews within the city, he built many impressive and ornate buildings, including a huge and massive and beautiful temple for them to worship in. But he also inflicted heavy taxes on them to keep them under bondage. And if anyone tried to get in his way, he would do whatever was necessary to remove that threat. At this point, he had actually already killed two of his sons who had tried to take over the throne. And and a third was actually plotting to kill a third who was doing the same. He'd also killed one of his wives for the very same reason. And this is what would lead Caesar himself to say of Herod, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Now, when this event took place, Herod was about 70 years old and nearing the end of his life. He had suffered an illness that made him even more paranoid of losing the throne, which resulted in further fits of anger and rage. And this is why the text says that he, Herod, was troubled, but it also says, and all Jerusalem with him. See, the people in Jerusalem knew that any threat to Herod would result likely in more cruelty and rage towards them. And they were not excited about that at all. So Herod, fearful of losing his throne, gathers together the chief priests and the scribes. And based on what he's heard, he asks them if they knew of anything where this com- would, would tell them about where this coming ruler would be born. 
And the religious leaders who knew the Old Testament better than anyone quote a prophecy from the book of Micah, which foretold exactly where the Messiah was to be born. And I want to read you that prophecy straight from the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and verses 4 and 5. It says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they, his people, shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is amazing when you think about it. Like the book of Micah was written over 700 years before this actual event would ever take place. And in these inspired verses, God tells his people exactly where their coming king would be born, in the small town of Bethlehem. And when Jesus is born in that small stable within that seemingly insignificant town, God shows us that all of history is resting in the palm of his hands, playing out exactly the way that he intended it. So if you're taking notes this morning, this is where I want you to see our first truth hidden within these first six verses. Here's truth number one. As we prepare for a new year, you can take God at his word. Amen. You can take God at his word. And this is just one example out of hundreds where the Bible proves that it is the most reliable book in all of history. Like no other book stands in comparison to the Bible. And add to it the fact that this is a book that was written by over 40 different authors in three different languages over the course of 1,500 years with perfect unity and harmony. Even within our passage today, Matthew does something even more amazing that extends beyond just this one simple prophecy. And you have to see this. So using this passage and other allusions that he'll make in chapter 2, Matthew makes it abundantly clear that the birth of Jesus is not only just a fulfillment of this one single prophecy, but a fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Entire Old Testament. So Matthew's gospel was originally written to a Jewish audience. And this is evidenced surely by the number of times that he quotes or alludes to the Old Testament throughout the book. There's at least 50 direct quotations and over 250 or more allusions or parallels to the Old Testament that he points out. And these were writings that each of his readers would have been familiar with. And so when he quotes the prophet Micah, and you may have noticed this, he uses a little bit different wording than what was included in that original prophecy. So in writing this portion of the gospel, Matthew makes some small clarifications to the original prophecy. And these clarifications, they're not, they don't change the meaning of the text. He's not altering or changing the Bible here at all. But instead, he's helping his readers see some, some of the significance in this specific fulfillment. So let me show this to you here. For example, in the first line, instead of using the word Ephratha, Matthew uses the phrase, in the land of Judah. Now, Ephratha was simply a common name for Bethlehem and its surrounding areas. And Matthew instead uses a more specific geographical description of the city, pointing to the fact that this prophecy of this coming ruler would not only be born in Bethlehem, but would also be born from the tribe of Judah, the tribe from which the Messiah was to come from. And this isn't something that was prophesied in the book of Micah, but instead this was prophesied all the way back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 49. So as Jacob is blessing each of his 12 sons, he comes to his son Judah and he says this, Genesis 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of 
the peoples. So that's one just small thing. And then in the last phrase of this prophecy that's listed here, Matthew also points out this, this coming king would, also, would not only be from the tribe of Judah, but would come from the Davidic line. And his readers would have already seen this back in chapter 1 where Matthew had traced Jesus' lineage all the way back to King David and then ultimately back all the way to Abraham. But just to make sure that they didn't miss the point, Matthew uses language directly from the Lord's call of King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, where the Lord said to David, from you shall come a ruler, and here's the quote, who will shepherd my people Israel? And this phrase would have certainly caught their ears and drawn attention to the fact that this child, their Messiah, was indeed born from the line of David. And even just with those two subtleties, Matthew doesn't even stop there. In fact, the way he crafts the rest of chapter 2, which we don't have time to read today, will provide even more illusions of how Jesus was the one the Old Testament was pointing forward to. So in the verses after our passage, Matthew will quote uh, two other Old Testament prophecies, one from the book of Hosea, one from the book of Jeremiah, that would be fulfilled in the next few years of Jesus' life. And then Herod, in an attempt to remove the threat of this coming king, would order that all the boys aged two and younger in Bethlehem would be killed, which would be reminiscent of another significant event from Israel's history. So kids, I want to ask you this question really quick. Thinking back about the Old Testament, can you think of another Bible character who escaped when a wicked ruler ordered that all baby boys aged two and younger would be killed? Yeah, Moses. Moses, who was rescued from Pharaoh. And seeing this imagery would have reminded his readers of the person who all of Israel had looked to previously as their mediator between them and God. And who also led them through the greatest act of salvation known to them in their history, God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And he was showing them that an even better mediator was coming to their rescue. Even when you think about the gifts that the wise men presented to baby Jesus, uh, they would be a foretaste of the fulfillment of a passage right out of Isaiah in chapter 60 and a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant, which stated that the coming Messiah would be a blessing to all the nations. Look at this in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3 and verse 6. It says, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. And I think it's really interesting. When you look at Matthew's gospel, did you notice who the first people are that come to worship Jesus? It's not the Jews, but instead foreign dignitaries from far off lands coming to offer honor and worship to Jesus, which is showing that Jesus didn't just come for a select group of people, but he came for all people, for all the nations. So just to summarize, in this short passage in the surrounding verses, Matthew shows us that this little baby was the promised one to be born in Bethlehem, in the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, the promised blessing to all nations from Abraham's line, who in the pattern of Moses would be their ultimate mediator between them and God to bring them salvation that would last for all of eternity. And that's why you can take God at his word. There is... No other book as reliable and trustworthy than the Bible. What is said or prophesied in the Bible came true. What was said would happen actually happened. And anything still waiting to happen, like Jesus coming in, which you talked about last Sunday, will happen. And the one and only righteous rule of the universe who has come to us in order that we might know and enjoy him forever fulfills it perfectly. Which is why I want to encourage you as we look to a new year 
to make being in God's word a priority this year. You know, for those of you who have been joining us for a while, you know that we're in the middle of a two-year Bible reading plan to read through the whole Bible in two years. And we'll start year two of that right here on January 1. And if you want to jump in with us, I encourage you to head over to mcleanbible.org slash Bible reading plan. There's also a short daily devotional written by D.A. Carson called For the Love of God that you can download online for free that partners with that. You want to get volume two of that for the second year. And David's Pray the Word podcast will track along with that plan as well. As we spend time on the Word, we grow understanding of who He is and what He has done simply just by reading this book consistently and regularly. When we commit to being in God's Word regularly, not only do we find encouragement in seeing how He fulfilled so much of what He said would happen in the Old Testament, but we also find promises that He's given to us for today that we need to be reminded of every single day. Like he promises that, we, that he will be with you in whatever you might experience this in, this in this coming year. It's Matthew 28. Promises to give you wisdom primarily through his word to navigate challenges and decisions that you may need to make in this coming year. That's James chapter 1. Promises to give you all the grace that you need to fight sin and temptation in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It tells you all that we need to endure suffering well. Basically, the entire book of 1 Peter And we'll see in our reading plan this week on Thursday in Revelation chapter 21 that he also promises us a day when sin and suffering will be no more. Like COVID, Delta, Omicron will not have a last word. Cancer will not have a last word. Mental illness, relational difficulties will not have the last word. Jesus will have the last word, and he has promised eternal rest, glory, reward, and enjoyment of him for all of eternity for those who have placed their trust in him. Which is what I want to say to those of you in the room or watching online or any of our other locations who have not yet trusted in Jesus with your life. The Bible shows us that a relationship with God is possible. It also shows us that every single person in the world needs to be restored in relationship to him. We've all rebelled against him by choosing our own way instead of his, and that rebellion separates us from God and has earned us an eternity apart from him that we are powerless in and of ourselves to be able to change. But when there was nothing that we could do, God did everything necessary for us. And this is the miracle that we celebrate at Christmas, that God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, born as a baby in a small stable in Jerusalem, born to die in order that you and I might be able to experience new life, which Matthew makes incredibly clear in chapter one of his gospel when he says, she, Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And I love that he goes on to quote another prophecy from the book of Isaiah that we've looked about in weeks past. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave three days later, declaring victory over sin and death, and he promises that all who turn from their sin and trust in his sacrificial death will be welcomed into a relationship with him that will last for all of eternity. So if you've not yet received Christ's sacrificial payment for your sins, I want to invite you today to trust in Jesus. Because he's also promised that there will be a day when it will be too late to receive that forgiveness. If you die without receiving his forgiveness, then you'll endure the just payment for your sins by spending an eternity apart from him in hell. I'm going to give you a moment uh, later on today to respond in that way if that's you. So truth number one, you can take God at his word. 
And the last six verses of our passage present yet another truth that I want you to cling to as we prepare to enter into a new year. And that second truth is this. Truth number two, as you prepare to go into a new year, you can trust God with your circumstances. You can trust God with your circumstances. And as you read through this story, you just can't miss the way that God superintends all of these events to bring about his purposes. We've already seen this clearly in the prophecies, how he would prophesy something hundreds of years later and then bring it to perfect fulfillment. But he goes even further from that. Starting in verse 7, let me recap this a little bit. It says this, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him which is about as empty of a promise as the one that the Grinch made to Cindy Lou Who when she asked him, why are you taking my Christmas tree? Why? Any of you watched that movie this past week? A few of you, maybe. And this is what the Grinch says to her. Why, my sweet little tot, the fake Santa Claus lied. There's a light on this tree that won't light on one side. So I'm taking it home to my workshop, my dear. I'll fix it up there, then I'll bring it back here. Thankful for another pastor in the area who showed me this connection, but just as the Grinch had no intention of bringing that tree back to Cindy Lou Who, Herod had absolutely no intention of worshiping that child. It was simply a facade for his plan to work towards the destruction of that child. And sadly, his heart would not grow three sizes larger, but would grow all the more cold. Thinking about this story in Matthew chapter 2, you know how the rest of the story goes with the wise men then. Star leads them to the house where Mary and Joseph are staying. The wise men rejoice when they see the Christ child and they fall on their faces in worship. They offer him gifts fit for a king. And then God warns them in a dream to return home using another path that would avoid any further interaction with King Herod. But did you notice how God was orchestrating every single detail of the story? Like, think about the star, for example. Aside from what this astronomical anomaly actually looked like, like many theories abound and none are certain enough to even speculate. Some people think it was a supernova, alignment of planets, a comet, maybe even a cloud of fire like the Lord used in the Exodus. The Bible just says it was a star, so that's all we know for now. But have you ever wondered why the star didn't just take the wise men directly to Bethlehem? Like, why did it lead them to stop off in Jerusalem first? It certainly would have been much more efficient and simple and would have avoided the difficulty introduced by Herod altogether. Why did God decide to do it in this way? Well, he did it this way because God was graciously making known to Herod, the religious leaders, all of Jerusalem, and ultimately to the entire world that his Messiah had come. And that the prophecy made centuries before was now coming to pass. And then even further, look at how God protects for and provides for all the individuals in this story as well. Like, Think about the wise men. We know that the wise men were clueless as to what Herod was actually up to in sending them to Bethlehem. Because if Herod was absolutely certain that, or or was absolutely certain that they would return to him with news about the child, he wouldn't have needed to send people to go along with them. If he didn't trust that they were going to come back, he probably would have sent along with them some accompaniments or some people to spy and even follow along on the side to see where this child was uh, to be able to pull apart his plan. But he doesn't do that. 
And the fact that God appeared to the wise men in a dream to warn them about Herod is pretty good evidence that had he not intervened, their next step would have certainly been to travel back to Jerusalem, about five miles or so away, to share with Herod what they found. But instead, God intervenes in their circumstances and leads them in a different path. Think about Mary and Joseph as well. It wouldn't take long for Herod to discover that the wise men were not coming back with the news that he was looking for. And the verses after our passage show how we would respond by ordering that all of the baby boys aged two and younger in the Bethlehem and surrounding areas would be killed. But God again provides for Mary and Joseph to ensure that they are taken care of. He warns Joseph in a dream about what is to take place and tells them to escape with a family to Egypt, which would have been a little shocking to Joseph at that time. This was going to be a very long journey and a very expensive journey. I'm sure Joseph's first reaction was like, okay, God, like how in the world am I going to afford a journey like this? But could it be that the expensive gifts given to them by the wise men would be just what they needed to fund their westward journey? Like even more, think about what Mary and Joseph, what led Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem in the first place. We talked about this in our quiz earlier, but God used the census issued by who? Caesar Augustus to bring them to the exact place that he wanted them. Even though these powerful rulers thought that they were running the show, God was actually guiding every single detail according to his perfect plan. And I actually love how this is described in the big picture story Bible. It's one of the Bibles we often read with our kids at night. I want to put some of the pictures of this Bible up on the screen, and I'll read some of the text that is on these pages. It says this, But Caesar began counting all his people to show everyone how great he was. What Caesar did not know was that God, the world's true ruler, the king of the universe, was getting ready to show everyone how great he was. And do you know how God was going to do this? Not like Caesar, by proudly counting all of his people, but humbly by becoming one of his people. In the power of his spirit, God would bring his forever king into the world as a baby. God was using every single detail in this story to bring about his purpose, which is true for the wise men, it's true for Mary and Joseph, it's even true for Herod. Which makes me think of what Colossians 1 says about God in verses 16 to 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and take this with you today. And in him all things hold together. Just as God was guiding the details of their lives in this story, he's absolutely guiding the details of your life as well. Every single one of them. Even when it might not make sense to us. Which if that's the case, then you can trust God when your circumstances change or seem uncertain. You can trust God when you experience delays and postponements. You can trust God with your joys as well as with your disappointments. You can trust God even when it doesn't seem like he's listening or present because he absolutely is. And you can even trust God with your urgent needs. We don't have time to read it this morning, but a little bit later in Matthew's gospel in chapter six, he would read about the fact how God, our heavenly father, knows our needs. He knows that we need them and promises to provide them. He doesn't say once. So kids, that's not a promise that you're gonna get exactly what you want for Christmas all over year. But it says that he knows what your needs are and promises to meet them in perfect accord with his will. We're all going to encounter times when we struggle to understand why God is doing things certain ways or why he's allowing this or that to happen. 
And sometimes in this life, we get to see his purposes. We get to see why he's redirected our steps in different ways. And other times, we just have to trust that our circumstances will finally make sense to us when we're standing with him in eternity and have the whole picture in view. But in all of our circumstances, we can trust that, we are, that our God is not only all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, but that he is also fully aware and fully in control. And sometimes he does things in such a way just to make sure that we know that, to remind us of that. I was reminded this week about a story from one of our NBC missionaries, and I won't mention this individual's name, but a few months before this person was about to hop on a plane and begin serving in a really difficult part of the world, this individual unexpectedly lost a significant amount of their hearing to the point that it would be severe enough that they would have to start wearing hearing aids. And you can imagine the questions and frustrations felt by this individual at that point. Like, really, Lord? Like, I'm about to leave everything and serve you overseas, and my hearing goes away. Like, why would you allow this? But fast forward many months, and because this individual had hearing aids, it actually opened the door to conversations with local officials in this context who were looking to help provide similar aid to people in this unreached context which then opened the door for this individual to build some amazing relationships and now opportunities to share the gospel with people who otherwise would not have had the opportunity to do so. The Lord is still at work in circumstances like this. I do want to say this is not to say that the Lord inflicts every illness or difficulty as a means to make things happen the way that he wants. Like a lot of what we encounter in this life is also just the fact that we live in a fallen, sinful world. But it does show how great our God is that in the midst of a world of sin and suffering, he can still even use these terrible things for our good and for his glory. And if this is the God that we serve, then we can absolutely trust him with our circumstances, even when it doesn't make sense. So as I close, I want to ask each of you, as we prepare to head into 2022, some questions just based on this. Like, will you take God at his word? Will you see his word as reliable and trustworthy? And will you commit to spending time with him daily, recognizing that in doing so, you get to be in relationship with the eternal king of the entire universe? And if so, how might you commit to making being in his word a priority in 2022? Make a plan to do that, because when you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And will you trust him with your circumstances? Recognizing that his plans and purposes are perfect, even when they don't make sense. I've said this a couple times. I think the last two years have taught this in a pretty incredible way. None of us know what 2022 might bring. Well, I think there's many things I'm sure each of us are hoping for. I'm certain that each of us will still encounter challenges, disappointments, and even further uncertainty. And my question is, should those things come Will you trust that even in the difficulties, God is absolutely working together for your good and his glory? Will you trust him in that? And for those of you who have never received Christ's forgiveness of your sin, I want to ask you this last question this morning. How will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to the reality of the God who has written this word that shows how all of history is held in his hands? Like, think about the response of the characters in the story from today. Will you respond like King Herod and all the people in Jerusalem who rejected him as king? Like Herod refused to let go of his pride and the authority in his life. 
30 years later, the people of Jerusalem would cry out to another Roman ruler, Pontius Pilate, and demand that Jesus be crucified. All of whom would come to find that rejecting Jesus results in eternal separation from Jesus. Or will you respond like the religious rulers, scribes and the Pharisees? Like when you think about it, these are the ones in the story who should have responded with the most joy and excitement as they're seeing prophecy fulfilled before their eyes. Yet they responded with apathy and indifference, which just goes to show that simply having knowledge about Jesus is not enough to lead to salvation from Jesus. It's not enough just to know about him. You need to respond to him as the wise men did, who sought to find him, who believed him to be the one who not just did not just come just to become a king, it says that he was born a king. The ancient of days, as Micah's prophecy stated. They bowed in honor and reverence to him and resolved to honor him rightly as Lord, recognizing that he is the only king of whose kingdom would be no end and would bring everlasting peace to those who would trust in him. Like, will you respond to Jesus as Lord of your life? I want to give you a chance to respond to him in that way now. Would you bow and pray with me? Whether you're here in the room, listening online, or at one of our other locations, if you've not yet trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that even in this moment right now. And there's no magical phrase or incantation or thing that you say to make that happen. You simply just need to say to him in the quietness of your heart, and you can even repeat this after me if you want. Lord, I recognize that I am a sinner, that I have rebelled against you, and that my sin has separated me from you. But I believe that Jesus was the one promised who was sent, born, born to die in my place to take on the full penalty that I deserved in order that I could be restored in relationship to you. I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And I ask that you would help me to live my life in such a way that shows that you are Lord over my life. And saying something like that to the Lord, he welcomes you into a relationship that, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, will never perish, spoil, or fade. So Lord, I want to pray for any individual in the sound of my voice that may have just prayed that. Pray that in this moment that you would flood their heart with peace and joy, knowing that they have just had the opportunity to speak to and interact with the God of the universe who has welcomed them into his family. Pray that as they commit to growing in their understanding of your word through reading the Bible, that they would grow in their love and enjoyment of you and what you have done for them. And for every other single person listening in today as well, Lord, I pray as you prepare to head into a new year this week, that you would give us incredible confidence in your word to know that it's trustworthy and that we can rely on it fully. That whatever experiences we might, might come our way in this new year, Lord, I pray that our trust in you would not waver but in those difficulties and challenges that we would know that you are a God who holds all of those challenges within his hand and promises that one day there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more tears, no, and just complete joy for all of eternity. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on that instead of the circumstances in front of us. Thank you for the story, Lord. Thank you for teaching to us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.